0: Are our habits ingrained? Why do we do many of the things we do? Can we break this cycle? Welcome to ReachMD's Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell, and on this edition, we will address these questions in the New York Times bestselling book, The Power of Habit, with the author Charles Duhigg. Charles, welcome. Thanks so much for having me on. So can you help us explain some of the animal models of habits?
1: Sure. In the last decade, as many of you in your audience know, we've sort of Been living through this golden age of understanding the neurology of habit formation and in particular the big insight is the power of sort of a simple model of understanding how habits or automatic behaviors unfold which is that every automatic behavior has three components there's a cue a routine and a reward and for many years when people thought about habits they really focused in on the routine on the behavior itself What's become more and more apparent, particularly as we've seen the neurology of how habits emerge, is how important that cue and the reward is, that in behaving in, in training that behavior, it's really the antecedents that trigger the behavior, and most importantly, the reward that the behavior is delivering that determine what becomes automatic and how deeply engaged parts of the brain, like the basal ganglia, become in making a behavior what we would sort of, to the layperson, would seem unconscious or subconscious.
0: Can you tell us the story of the brain-injured patient Eugene and what we learned about habits from him? Yeah,
1: Eugene's a really interesting um, character. He, he So much like H.M., the, the famous ner- neurology patient, Eugene is known within literature as E.P. His name was Eugene Polly. He had suffered um, about 20 years ago, 25 years ago, um, uh, viral encephalitis. And what was interesting about the, the pathology of the viral encephalitis is that it had moved up his spine into his brain and had eaten away par- the parts of his brain that have to do with short-term memory. So as a result, he was an almost total short-term amnesiac. Although he did have memory of his childhood and he had memory of events until about the, the 1960s, everything after that went blank. And he could only retain things for about 30 seconds so for instance he would you know he knew who his wife was but he couldn't recognize his grandchildren when he saw them. And What was really interesting is that research physician at University of San Diego started researching EP and what he noticed is that EP seemed to have this ability to develop new habits so if you asked Eugene where the kitchen was to point through the doorway in his house that led to the kitchen he couldn't tell you but If he was hungry and you asked him what to do when he was hungry, he could stand up, walk into the kitchen, open up the cabinet that contained the nuts, get down the nuts, and feed himself. And that was because essentially this behavior had become automatic. It had become a habit. And from this came this general theory that habit has very little to do with conscious memory. And that, in fact, it takes place in other parts of the brain where patterns seem to emerge because of a reward phenomena.
0: So, what are some of our automatic behaviors we do every day without thinking about?
1: It, there's dozens, right? In fact, there was a woman named Wendy Wood at Duke University who followed around a couple hundred people and figured that about 40 to 45% of our day is habits, not decisions, but habits. When you, for instance, brush your teeth, you don't really have to use a lot of willpower to make yourself brush your teeth in the morning, right? It just feels automatic. That's a habit. When you if I could study how you put on your shoes, I guarantee you you either put your left shoe on first or your right shoe on first every single day. That's because that's become a habit. When you back your car out of your driveway and you don't really have to concentrate on it. When you remember getting in the car and now you're at your desk, but you don't remember the drive to work and what exactly you did. You were sort of on autopilot. All of those are habits. And if somehow we could you know stick in an fMRI and really study your brain very deeply as you went about your daily behaviors, what we would see is that every single one of those automatic behaviors had some cue, right? When you're pulling out your keys to go over to your car, the keys might be the cue. And more importantly, there's some type of anticipated reward that drives the behavior. So you might not be aware of it, but when you back your car out of the driveway successfully without hitting the tree or a garbage can or some kid riding by on a bike, we see a brief burst of neurological reward activity in your brain. Neurotransmitters associated with a sense of satisfaction and uh, completing anticipation will minutely erupt. And that's what makes behavior automatic is the fact that there is this reward at the end, even if you're not aware of it.
0: So certainly, if any of us have driven with new drivers, it's, it's so hard for them to back up a car and all the things they have to remember, and, and we automatically kind of get in our car and suddenly we're at work. So there are a ton of automaticity of the things that we do. So for us to make changes, do we need to figure out our cue, routine reward for our behaviors?
1: Yeah. And the really important part there is the reward that, you know, the cues are sometimes hard to discriminate, but the reward trying to figure out what is actually driving our behavior is really important and really sometimes challenging. You know, as an example, I used to have this bad cookie habit. And so when I was working on the book, I would oftentimes ask the neurologist I'm talking to, how to, how to change this habit of eating a cookie every afternoon. And they said, well, you got to figure out what the reward is. And I figured, well, I, I, you know, I I think it's probably eating a cookie, that the cookies are tasty. And they said, no, 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 rewards are much more complicated than that. Is it, for instance, that you're hungry, in which case having an apple instead should do the job, or that you need that burst of energy that the sugar provides, in which case having a cup of coffee should do the trick, or or just that you need a break from your work, in which case taking a walk around the block should do it. So I experimented with different behaviors and, and, or different rewards and figured out that what it was in my case was that when I went up in the afternoon to get a cookie, that's oftentimes when I saw my friends from the, the newsroom and we would sit and gossip for 15 or 20 minutes. And it was really the socialization that was driving that habit. But until you figure out what the reward is, you don't really know how to come up with a behavior that will provide a similar reward with a, uh, a healthier
0: routine. I'm Dr. John Russell, and you are listening to ReachMD Book Club. We're speaking with the author Charles Duhigg on his bestseller, The Power of Habit. So, Charles, can you discuss how industry has turned things like teeth brushing into an American habit?
1: Yeah. In in fact, about 100 years ago, you know, very few people in the United States brush their teeth on a daily basis. And then uh, a marketer named Claude Hopkins was talking to a, a friend of his who had invented a toothpaste named Hepsodent. And Hopkins volunteered to do this marketing campaign in exchange for some stock in the company. And he did two sort of smart things. The first thing he did is he created a whole bunch of ads that say, do you notice that film on your teeth? Run your tongue over your teeth and you'll feel a film. Now, people had had that film for centuries and had never really worried about it before. But it turns out that you tell people, run your tongue over your teeth. They'll run their tongue over their teeth. And more importantly, they added to the Pepsodent recipe chemicals and oils that made people's gums and tongues tingle after they used the toothpaste. That was important because it had nothing to do with making teeth cleaner, but it provided this reward for people after they would brush. It made it feel like Pepsodent was actually doing a job. And that's why people started brushing their teeth. They They began to crave that tingling on their gums and their tongue. Now, today, when you brush your teeth, you still feel that tingling. That, that has nothing to do with the effectiveness of the toothpaste. That's because there's chemicals that toothpaste companies add to create that tingling sensation. But if you have a visceral reward like that, you can't develop a habit. And that's what consumer packaged goods companies and others have discovered.
0: So Starbucks has done a lot of work with their employees on basic habits.
1: That's right. You know, one of the really interesting things for Starbucks is that Starbucks was in, was in a position where they needed to, to figure out how to help employees increase their willpower because Starbucks really sells customer service. They, they guarantee you know, to the customer that when you come in, you're going to get treated by someone who's smiling behind the counter, and that's why they can charge you $4.50 for a latte that costs them $0.13 cents to produce. But what's interesting is that they mainly hire recent high school graduates or people who don't have a lot of professional experience. And so one of the things that they've done is they've really focused on how to train people to develop willpower habits that allow them to continue to give customer service even after they get tired, even when they're at the end of an eight-hour shift. And what we know about willpower is the best way to teach it to people is to make it into a habit one of my favorite examples of this at Starbucks is something they call, they, they call the latte habit. That um, They teach you that when an angry customer comes in, that's the cue. And the routine is that you should listen to their complaint, and then acknowledge their complaint, and then thank them for complaining and take care of their complaint by giving them a free cup of coffee or anything else they want, and then explain why this will never happen. Again, it spells out latte, which is easy to remember when you're working in a coffee place. And the reward is that this previously irate customer is now smiling and happy. What Starbucks is really teaching people are life skills. They're teaching them how to deal with, you know, kind of uncomfortable situations, angry people, in a way that's completely disarming. And employees tell tell me that you know this ends up sort of transforming their lives. And now they know how to how to deal with hard situations in their personal life, or with their families, or with their kids. What Starbucks is really teaching are willpower habits that spill over into all types of different aspects of people's lives.
0: So we've learned over the last decade that perhaps hospitals are not the safest places in the United States. So how have hospitals used some of this kind of habit research to make hospitals safer?
1: Well, one of the things that they do, and and everyone who's listening who works in a hospital knows this, is that they've, they've tried to diagnose how to create cues and rewards for physicians and for patients. One of the best interventions, obviously, is hand washing, where hospitals have experimented with what kinds of cues will get folks to wash their hands. And very similar to, you know, discussing the sort of visceral need for reward in toothbrushing, what they found is that the more visceral the cue, oftentimes the more likely that people will wash their hands. So it's not uncommon now to walk around a hospital and see a, a picture of a germy hand on the wall as a reminder that you should wash every time you walk into a new exam room. But equally, they focused on how to train patients in thinking about their own habits. There was a really interesting study that was done out of a Scottish hospital a couple of years ago where this is a hospital that did a lot of joint replacements, and they served a particularly elderly and poor population base who had trouble maintaining their rehab, sticking to rehab schedules. So a researcher went in and she asked, she explained to folks how the science of habits works, and then she asked all of the patients to come up with 13 habits to try once a week to to write down what the cue and the reward would be for these new habits. And rehab is 13 weeks long, so they wrote them down on pieces of paper, and then she asked them to do one a week. And what they found is that simply asking people to make decisions about the habits that they want to cultivate, identifying those cues and rewards, what's known in psychology as implementation intentions, seems to have a huge impact. They saw a 50% greater rehabilitation effort among this experimental population that they had asked to choose their habits ahead of time and had trained in how habits work. And I think that gets to something kind of deep, which is that Simply understanding what we've learned about habits seems to have uh, a capacity for changing people's behaviors. You know, it's—I'm not saying that, that I, you know, sitting down and jotting out the cue and the reward and thinking about it makes changing a habit easy. It, change is fundamentally hard, but once you understand how your own behavior works, it's change easier. You begin to break your behavior into parts. And you can start thinking about, okay, here's the cue, and this is when I have to be on guard. And here's the reward that this behavior is, this bad behavior is delivering to me. I need to find something new that gives me that reward, but in a healthier way.
0: If you could give one tip from all your research uh, for clinicians to try to get patients to change a habit like smoking, what would it be?
1: It would be to really focus in on those rewards. I mean, I think when people come in, it, one of the things that we know about habits is that it, because they happen in a part of our brain, which is not the prefrontal cortex, they, they really originate in the basal ganglia, they, there's, there's less consciousness involved in a habit. Our brain kind of turns off a little bit when it takes over. And so we tend to become very unaware of what's driving our behaviors, But if you sit down with someone who's a smoker and say to them, you know, what is that smoking delivering to you? What's the reward? I know that there's something about smoking you love. What is it? It, Chances are they're going to say, well, look, this is how I break up my day. And so you can say, look, here's a new behavior to help you break up your day. If that's the reward you need, here's a different way to do it. Or they say, it gives me a burst of energy in the morning and I need that focus that nicotine provides. Then you can say, well, in that case, why don't you start you know, drinking two cups of coffee or some really strong coffee or something that will help you get that same focus. We know that habits, if, if you create a vacuum, it's very hard to extinguish a habit. You really have to replace one habit with another behavior. And once you identify what that reward is, it's easier to figure out what the new behavior should be.
0: Well, Charles, thank you so much for being on the program. Really enjoyed your book. It's a great read for I've certainly all of our listeners have habits they want to change. So thank you very much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me on. This is Dr. John Russell. If you missed any of this discussion and want to hear other programs in this series, please visit ReachMD.com where you can download the podcast and learn more about this series. Thanks for listening.